Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. A few weeks ago, a story appeared in the New York Times that caught a lot of people's attention, most definitely including mine. The headline of the piece was, quote, The psychedelic revolution is coming. Psychiatry may never be the same. The subhead was, quote, Psilocybin and MDMA are poised to be the hottest new therapeutics since Prozac. These were dramatic, head-turning claims, and for those of us who have been following the story for decades, they marked a moment in history that a lot of us believed for a long time would never arrive. As soon as I saw the headline and the subhead, I thought of a guy that I've known since 1988, a guy who believed all along that this moment, in fact, would come, who's devoted much of his adult life to making sure it did, and who can now claim, I think fairly, now claim credit as the single person who's done more than anyone on the planet ushering in a change that some of us believe is a huge piece of therapeutic, social, and political progress. At that point, I started to read the body of the article in the Times, and there, right in the first sentence, immediately following a somewhat predictable hat tip to the Grateful Dead, was the very guy that I was thinking of. Here's how that story started. Quote, It's been a long, strange trip (laughs) in the four decades since Rick Doblin, a pioneering psychedelics researcher dropped his first hit of acid in college and decided to dedicate his life to the healing powers of mind-altering compounds. If you haven't read the story in the Times yet, I suggest you do. And if you don't know who Rick Doblin is, you are in for a real treat today here on Hell and High Water because the next thing I did after finishing reading the Times article was to fire off an email to my old pal Rick and invite him to come on the podcast. And here he is, the trip master general himself, Rick Doblin. The state of the psychedelic renaissance is like uh, just coming on, like the beginning of an LSD trip, but that it's very promising, very challenging, and very encouraging, and it's been a long time coming. As I mentioned, I first met Rick Doblin in the fall of 1988 when we both showed up at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, each of us feeling a little out of place and looking for kindred spirits to hang out with. I'm not going to tell any more of that story because you will hear it on today's episode. In fact, I'm going to make this introduction shorter than normal because so much of what I would have said here we cover in our conversation. It's a great conversation with me and Rick, and I think you're going to enjoy it. It's a little different than a lot of things we've done on Hell and High Water in the past, but at a moment when the darkness may be lifting a little bit in our lives and the lightness is coming upon us, this is a good news story. What I will say along that line, is that when I first met Rick Doblin, I was both a fierce critic of America's so-called war on drugs, which of course should always have been called the war on some drugs, and I was also a big believer in the power of psychedelics. At the time, and for some years after, I was also convinced that the likelihood of significant change in how this country approached illegal drugs, from marijuana, cocaine, and heroin to LSD, psilocybin mushrooms, and MDMA, aka ecstasy, or molly, likelihood of big change was extremely small. That overcoming many decades of criminalization and demonization and stigmatization to create a new, rational, more enlightened approach to drugs would almost certainly prove to be impossible. Rick was then and now more optimistic than me, also then and now considerably crazier and more quixotic. But it turned out that Rick was right and I was wrong. We are still a long, long way from a fully rational, fully enlightened approach to drugs in this country, or really anywhere. But first, when it came to marijuana, and now on the psychedelic front, 
the degree of progress that's been made over the past couple decades just completely blows my fucking mind, like blows my mind in a way that very few drugs ever have. And the story of how that happened is fascinating and surprising and inspiring. And the heroes in that story are almost entirely unsung. Rick Doblin is not the only hero in that story, but he is absolutely a hero, a guy who never ceases to impress and amaze me and a guy I am proud to know and call a friend and a guy I am enormously, vastly, even bigly thrilled to introduce to all of you right here on Hell and High Water. Is there anyone out there who still isn't clear about what doing drugs does? Okay, last time. This is your brain. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? So, <laughs> so that is uh welcome to, to this episode of hell and high water with my old friend we were going to talk uh, about a lot of stuff my friend rick doblin the head of the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies and i will say that little piece of sound there is a famous famous infamous famous commercial from 1987 the partnership for a drug-free america and you don't even i don't even have to explain to you he cracks an egg he puts it in the frying pan and i always thought this is your brand drugs when i looked at that i'm like hmm the perfect form of protein, you know, like <laughs> egg in a pan sounds like sounds great. That's my drain on drugs. Give me some, give me some more. Rick, how are you, man? I'm doing great. And I was also uh, similarly humored by all of these partnership for a drug-free America ads. Yeah. It's outrageous. There's actually a woman that was featured on Oprah and others as having holes in her brain from MDMA. Yeah. And she was walking, talking, she was doing fine. But I used to say that there was uh, one sign of brain damage that she did show which is she later went to work for a partnership for a drug-free America <laughs> as their anti-ecstasy spokesperson, yeah. you know, supposedly with all these holes in her brains. <laughs> so here's the thing, Rick, there's so many ways we're going to talk about uh, the psychedelic renaissance and everything you're involved with right now. And, and I, I got to say, like, part of the reason I played that sound is that part of it is because I want to plant the rea- the notion that that was 1987, which is really one year before you and I met in 1988. Yeah, yeah. I could start down the path of just like, let's tell the whole story of our relationship, which I will. <laughs> but I want to I really just start right now just to give people a sense of like why you're on this podcast. And, and the reality is that not that long ago in May, a story appeared in the New York Times that got a lot of attention from a lot of people. It was a story that the headline of which was the psychedelic revolution is coming. Psychiatry may never be the same. And you, Rick Doblin, were the lead in this story, the most cliche lead in the world. This has been a long, strange trip in the four (laughs) decades since Rick Doblin, a pioneering psychedelics researcher, dropped his first hit of acid in college uh, and decided to dedicate his life to the healing powers of mind-altering compounds. That's the lead. The important part of this story and what I think got people's attention is that this is the nut graph of the story, which is after decades of demonization and criminalization, psychedelic drugs are on the cusp of entering mainstream psychiatry with profound implications for a field that in recent decades has seen few pharmacological advancements for the treatment of mental disorders and addiction. And I, I cite the piece because it got a lot of attention from a lot of people. Yeah, I cite it because I think it's true. An incredible moment is upon us where a thing that we never thought would happen is about to happen. And I think it's also true that you have had as much to do that as, with that as any other single person on the planet. Yeah. And 
Um, it's one of the things, I mean, I, we you have known each other since I, like I said, since 1988 <laughs> and I'm, I've always been proud to know you and I've always been proud to call you a friend, yeah. but I'm especially proud right now. So tell me like, what is this moment? And we'll, again, we'll talk about how we got here. We'll get deep into that, but a story like that appears and you look at it and you say, what? The hippies were right. <laughs> 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 there is something to this psychedelic stuff. Not only the hippies, but it's thousands of years. The Greeks were right. You know, there was the longest running mystery ceremony in the history of the world went from 1600 BC to around 396 AD. It was the Eleusinian mysteries. Everybody who was anybody in the, that we think of in the ancient Greeks, the fount of democracy and all used psychedelics at the Eleusinian mysteries. And it was wiped out by the Catholic church in 396. And then when we have all of the um, sort of dark ages, then we have the conquistadors and others coming to the new world. And they just wiped out this whole tradition of direct spirituality. And so the moment that we're at now, in some ways, is a millennium and a half of suppression in Western culture of psychedelics and psychedelic experiences turning around and becoming more accepted. And so I think it's massive historical changes at a time where we need it more than ever because humanity is like lemmings going over the cliff with yeah. climate change, with nuclear war. With so the moment we're in is acknowledging something that Carl Jung said. It's one of my favorite quotes that I've been using lately. It's a few years before the psychologist Carl Jung died. And what he said is that we need to know more about psychology. We know very little about man. Their only real danger that exists as man himself, and we know far too little about himself because we are the origin of all coming evil. Yeah, And that was uh, 15 years or so after World War II and a few years before he died. So I think at a moment of incredible need for humanity to realize our connection with each other and with the world, and psychedelics has tools to do that, they are emerging again and they're being accepted in a bipartisan way, surprisingly. Yeah. And I got to say, if anybody wanted to understand like what my relationship with Rick Doblin has been like, this is a pretty good thing. Like you kind of start, you're about three minutes in and he's quoting Carl Jung. Um, that's always like where it's always where we start. So the other thing is just in this, just a kind of like where we are, like this piece makes a bunch of claims, yeah. which I, I'm not as competent enough to judge. One of which is that psilocybin and MDMA magic mushrooms and ecstasy for those of you who need the kind of street lingo are poised to become the hottest therapeutics, you know, since Prozac. Yeah. Yes. And I don't know if that's kind of like media hype or not, but it's clear from the story that there's tons of investment pouring in. Universities are like setting up psychedelic research institutions all over the place. There's tons of money, whether it's in the yeah. nonprofit part of it or the for-profit part of it, it's all pouring in yeah. that kind of speaks to this moment. And the argument here is that a lot of what is unleashing this is in fact, some peer-reviewed, important scientific research that you guys at maps yeah. are behind so talk just as we as we before we go step back i just tell people what the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies is what the research that you funded is mm -hmm. where it currently stands and why it leads people to make these rather dramatic maybe overheated maybe not claims about what's about to happen with two drugs mm -hmm. that have been largely verboten from acceptable use in America in our lifetime. Suddenly it's like, oh, they're going to be the next Prozac, which means everybody's going to be taking them if that's true. Although the difference I would say is that Prozac was meant to reduce symptoms, be taken on a daily basis for the decades, sometimes the rest of people's lives. And psychedelics are used with therapy yep. a few times to get to the core of the root of the problem and then try to make people free of the need for drugs. So that's one reason why we're approaching this in a nonprofit context too. But MAPS 
I started in 1986, so two years before we met, and one year after MDMA was criminalized. And so MAPS was started as a nonprofit psychedelic and medical marijuana pharmaceutical company. I learned about MDMA in 82. It was 72 that I decided to focus my life on psychedelics. Ten years later, I learned about MDMA. Incredible. 1984 was the first time I worked with a PTSD patient and saw that MDMA really worked. I talked about that in my TED Talk. We were battling Nancy Reagan and Just Say No and Ronald Reagan and the rise of the drug war. And they went to criminalize ecstasy, not knowing anything about the therapeutic use of MDMA. Uh, I went to D.C. and we had a DEA administrative law judge hearing, and we were just winning in the courts of public opinion with the media. We had monks and rabbis talking about the value of MDMA. Uh, Zalman Schachter claimed uh, in the Washington Post MDMA was like the Sabbath. Brother David Steindlerast was saying that a monk spends his whole life trying to reach the enlightened attitude that MDMA can give you. The DEA freaked out, criminalized MDMA in 85. Later, we won the hearing. The judge said it'd be Schedule 3, meaning illegal for recreational use, legal for medical use, and the DEA administrator rejected the recommendation. We sued a couple times and won in the appeals court. Eventually, we lost. But MAPS was started because there was no other way to bring this back. Now, that's 35 years ago, but through the FDA, through science, through medicine, and this strategic analysis that I learned at the Kennedy School was you know, which of the psychedelic drugs would be most likely to make it through, and then which patient populations, and then we put together MDMA for PTSD for a variety of reasons. And so the situation that we're at now was we have just completed the first phase three study. We need two of those to make a drug into a medicine. The results were outstanding, and it was published in Nature Medicine, one of the best uh, scientific journals. But it took 35 years to get here. And we were at this place where in 1970, the Controlled Substances Act formally criminalized all psychedelics and in an overreaction, or really the intended reaction, was to shut down all psychedelic research for decades and decades and decades, not just in the U.S., but all over the world. Because stories about science proper risk-benefit analysis, stories about benefits gets in the way of the narrative of the drug war. And so there was massive suppression of research until around 1992. And at that point, we had a hearing with the FDA about our protocol that we wanted to look at the therapeutic use of MDMA. And the FDA said, yes, they would open the door to psychedelic research, but they would hold it to the same standard as big pharma, any other drugs. So that meant we had to start with a phase one safety study. That took us through the 90s, 1999, 2000. We started MDMA for PTSD. That was another 16 years till the end of 2016, November 29th, where we had the end of phase two meeting with FDA. They let us move into phase three. And we negotiated with eight months with them to design the phase three study. Because a big part of my dissertation at the Kennedy School was how do you do a double blind study yeah. with a drug like a psychedelic? You take it, you know it. It's hard to, you know, <laughs> tell it you can tell it apart from a placebo. Yes. <laughs> you know, for anybody that's taken these drugs, you yeah. would know that. So we ended up then um, starting our first phase three study. It got slowed down by COVID a bit. But this is the first time ever in American world history that psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy has been in phase three. Yeah, The work with psilocybin and others is still in phase two. They're still trying to figure out how to design phase three. And the results are phenomenal. And so just to give you an example of why I think it really is this turning point in psychiatry, 
about a year ago, I was asked by psychiatric residents at UMass Worcester to, they wanted to start a monthly discussion about psychedelics and they wanted me to lead off to be the first speaker. And when they invited me, I was like, this is great. I said, but the new president of the American Psychiatric Association is on your faculty, Jeffrey Geller. Can you have him be a discussant after my talk? And they said, yes. Then I said, the former head of the American Psychiatric Association, Paul Summergrad, who's head of psychiatry at Tufts, he's sympathetic. Could you have him be a discussant as well? And he agreed. So after my talk, we got the current president of the American Psychiatric Association, the former one, all agreeing with me and with these psychiatric residents that psychedelics are the future of psychiatry. Yeah. So I think it really is a turning point. And the thing is that they work. So it's a it's a moment, right? And I think it's you know it's worth telling a little bit this little story, which relates to which relates to Rick and I. Rick and I arrived at the Kennedy School together in the fall of 1988. And at the Kennedy School, like at many places, there's a picture book of the incoming class. So you get this picture book, and you can see who your classmates are, and you, can, you know you see people in the in one of the, the buildings, and you sort of can identify who they are and go look a little bit up about them. And I, I somehow I was flipping through the book, um, just trying to get a sense of who was in the class. And I ran across this Doblin dude who um, <laughs> who was from a goddess school at New College in Florida, Sarasota. And it said he was the founder of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And I was like, I got to meet that guy because like someone, <laughs> I had no idea what that meant. I just thought, okay, I mean, I, I was very interested in psychedelics and I'd taken a fair number of psychedelics and was a fan of psychedelics. And so I thought, well, here's a fellow traveler. I don't know what it's going to be like here at this school and how uptight people are going to be. But here's someone who apparently is interested, at least in studying psychedelics. I'll go see him. So I went and met Rick and walked up to him and said, hey, I'm John Hammond. I really like psychedelics. Um, nice to meet you. And we started a conversation that like lasted for the whole two years that we were at the Kennedy School. Yeah. And I learned, you know, an enormous amount about the history of the regulatory efforts to quash that Rick just laid out in a very high level detail. And I also learned that with one of the things that we had through that period was a shared theory of the case about our time at the Kennedy School, which was that if this was the generation of policymakers who were going to go out and shape the world at this very elite institution, these people were going to end up running the government um, and making big decisions on policy and regulation, that it was really important to get them all to take MDMA um, because <laughs> yes. because it would because it, if they took it, they wouldn't be afraid of it and they would see it for what it was, that it was this magical, wonderful, non-threatening thing. And that enlightenment now, then I should say, would lead to enlightenment further down the line. Yeah. And I guess I'm curious about whether you think, I mean, I'll just say we, you know, we, there were a lot of people who took MDMA at the Kennedy School because of, <laughs> because mostly because of Rick, but a little bit because of me, uh, at our encouragement. And I stand by it as one of the things. No one ever complained afterwards. No one came back and said, <laughs> right. I can't believe you guys suggested I take that, that ecstasy. That is terrible. Everybody came back and was like, yeah, like, oh, I was afraid of that. Now I'm not anymore. So I wonder whether you think that that little story, Rick, yeah. is like a part of what has actually happened. It took 35 years, as you say. It's been a long time since you started mm -hmm. this crusade. But whether what has happened in some way is that that's a micro version of a macro story, which is that in the same way that gay marriage, mm -hmm. the same way that marijuana have both become widely accepted universally almost because generational change happened and cultural acceptance came with generational change. And as a generation of people who had experience with gay people and had experience with weed, they understood that these things were not what they had been told, that the way that they had been demonized was untrue once they had a direct experience of them. And that was really what transformed the approach to policy. I wonder whether you think that's the case now. 
In your experience over these years, has it been the case that people who you've run across in both scientific and policy areas have been like, yeah, I did these drugs when I was younger and I know that they're, and I know they're not what they are cracked up to be by those who hate them. Or is that like overstating the way in which this has changed? No, I think that's really true. I mean, there's been a lot of polling that recently we've done with some of the money that we've gotten and, and other groups that we're working with. And what changes people's attitudes is for medical marijuana, what led to marijuana legalization support that we're having is if you know a medical marijuana patient. Right. When people can speak to somebody directly who's had the experience, they're more likely to believe it than all of the information they get because they don't know what's propaganda, what's not. The other part of this direct experience is people speaking out, the coming out, so that we've seen that with gay rights and gay marriages, people coming out, all these people that you didn't know were gay, now courageous enough to say that they were gay. Or with psychedelics, we see that now, that more people are willing to acknowledge their prior psychedelic experience. There's one thing connected to the Kennedy School. It's not someone who did MDMA, I'll just say, but Juan Garcia, if you remember him. I do. He was a great guy. We were friends, but you know he was more um, military-oriented, You know, didn't want to do these things. But yeah. maybe about six years ago, I had a meeting at the Pentagon to talk about MDMA research for veterans with PTSD, particularly in the Navy, Secretary of the Navy. So we had a meeting with the Secretary of the Navy, Richard Rockefeller, I was working with him. Senator Jay Rockefeller was his uh, cousin on the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee. But the meeting inside the Pentagon was the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, the Navy Surgeon General. And it turned out that it was Juan Garcia <laughs> as the Assistant Secretary of the Navy. Wow. And he was like, you know, I remember all these talks about MDMA that we had at the Kennedy School. And he was sympathetic. It was just incredible for me to like, you know, I was a draft resistor in Vietnam planning to go to jail. And, and I remember how yeah. Abby Hoffman and the Yippies were talking about levitating the Pentagon, which, of course, failed. But here we are going. As far, in, as, we know, as, far as we know, as far as we know, but here we are going into the Pentagon talking about psychedelics with people who are sympathetic. Which is actually almost harder to believe than levitating the Pentagon. It is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was just such a fortuitous meeting Yeah, that there he was. So these connections that we made at the Kennedy School and, and more and more people um, hearing stories of healing. And I think that's what has really changed people's attitudes. You mentioned Reuben and Hoffman. So I, I yeah. want to just in, in terms of like the 60s, Reuben Hoffman, their contemporaries, yeah. you know, the person I've obviously most famously associated with LSD and really with drugs, kind of, kind of <laughs> the person who was the face of, of counterculture and drugs in the 60s was Timothy Leary, yeah. uh, someone that Rick studied and has a great deal of knowledge about and a lot of complex yeah. views about. But I want to play a little bit. There's a Tim Leary debate that took place in uh, at MIT in 1967, um, where Leary talks about a couple things that go directly to the topic we're talking about right now. So let's play this Tim Leary sound and we'll talk about it on the other side. To show you the difficult nature of the scientific study of LSD, uh, I want to uh, tell you a story of what happened uh, with the scientific study of marijuana in the United States. In fact, you know it's impossible in the United States uh, for the last 15 or 20 years to do scientific research on marijuana. Uh, there was a man named Anslinger back in the 30s who got Congress to uh, pass a law saying that marijuana was bad. Now, as Judeo-Christians, we just have to have something that's bad. It has to be communists, or it has to be witches, or it has to be devils, or it has to be possession, or the infidel, or the pagan. But we have to have something that's bad, and then we pass a law against it. So, so, <laughs> so, there's, so there's Timothy Leary, you know, telling a little bit of history of, like, what happened. And it really, in a lot of ways, that's, you know, 1967, right? So 
really that the story he's telling there about how marijuana got stigmatized and in the Judeo-Christian way, we got to have something that's bad. So then we pass a law against it, even if we don't really understand it. And he makes it, this is a much longer clip. You could listen to it for a really long time yeah. of Leary talking about how really we don't know very much about marijuana. Yeah. And we really don't know very much about LSD and that it's a problem that we're not allowed to do real research on these things yeah. because there's no way to really va- evaluate the risk or the rewards. And hearing it, I thought to myself, well, first of all, yeah. Rick has been singing out of the songbook since the day I met him. Yeah. But secondly, it does go to the marijuana thing because he makes the connection. He's like, let's talk about LSD and how it connects to marijuana. Yeah. And it seems to me that like if I were trying to tell this story and you are way more familiar, not just as a reader of the story, but as an author of the story. But if I were trying to tell the story yeah. of what's happened over the past 30 years is that you have to start to understand why a story in the New York Times comes out and why the reality is that we're on this brink of a psychedelic renaissance and yeah. widespread therapeutic acceptance of psilocybin and MDMA and maybe in the future LSD, although I know we're not there yet. Yeah. The starting point is it really, it turns out that maybe marijuana is not a gateway drug, but marijuana reform was a gateway reform. Is that right? That's very right. Now, there's something that's not going to get a lot of attention, I don't think as much as it deserves, that just happened in a few days ago with marijuana. So Leary was talking about in 67, the difficulty of doing research with marijuana. In 1968, in order to facilitate research, a license was given to the University of Mississippi to grow marijuana for research purposes. And up until a few days ago, that has been a monopoly that has existed. There's only one federally licensed production facility for marijuana. They grow under contract to the National Institute on Drug Abuse which provides to researchers, but not for commercial sales. So that in phase three, which is where we're at with MDMA, you have to use the exact same drug that you want to market. Right. So this government monopoly on the production of marijuana that's been around now 53 years, Jesus. just ended the last few days ago. And MAPS, we started trying to go after it in 2000 yeah. with Professor Lyle Craker at UMass Amherst. And we even had another DEA administrative law judge hearing that in 2005, that was successful. In 2007, the judge said it should be in the public interest and the monopoly, give Professor Craker a license. The DEA waited for two years, a few days before Obama was inaugurated. They rejected the recommendation. Then Obama did nothing until uh, 2016 before he could no longer run for election. Trump got elected and things were squashed. And now under Biden, this 53-year monopoly has finally ended. And this was the last bastion of political obstruction of research with psychedelics or marijuana. So it's a momentous situation. And I do think that the marijuana story is underlying a lot of the story about what's going on with psychedelics. And the medical marijuana story is underlying a lot of what's going on with the marijuana legalization because there's so much propaganda. Just uh, another story that you'll be sympathetic with from our Kennedy School days. So 1989 is when um, uh, my wife, Lynn, uh, she started at the Kennedy School. Yep. And our first date, I thought it was a date. She didn't really think it was a date, but she just wanted to talk to me about a mushroom experience she had in college. But she just offhanded say, you know, I'm, there's no way I'd ever want a long-term relationship with you because you've done so much LSD, your chromosomes must be really messed up. And I was like, well, you know, let me defend my sperm. <laughs> and that was our first date discussion. Yeah. We laugh about it now, but there's so much incredible misinformation, even in smart people that believe a lot of this stuff, or if they don't quite believe it, there's this reservoir of fear and anxiety. 
And it took medicalization to change people's attitudes about that and get them to rethink a lot of things they'd been taught and to get them to be more comfortable. And now the polling that we've done, the most effective spokesperson on medical marijuana or on psychedelics is a patient that's been through the studies and can testify personally about what's happened to them. I think it's, you know, incontrovertibly true at the core of a lot of change in people's perceptions has been at the beginning of it, the core of it and at the start of it has been, uh, well, the story will be told, you know, medical marijuana was the beginning, like kind of the gateway, not the gateway drug, but the gateway change to a lot of other changes in terms of how people think about stuff. And we will talk more about the future of psychedelics and what the future holds for psychedelics later on in the podcast. But right now, I think is a good time for us to take a little break. Uh, we are here with my friend Rick Doblin, Tripmaster General, Captain of the Good Ship Psychedelic Renaissance. Uh, <laughs> we're here with Rick Doblin on Hell and High Water. So let's listen to a couple commercials and we'll be back after those messages. Hey, sports fans, if you are someone who enjoys Hell and High Water and you are interested in understanding the storylines that are shaping modern life, and I mean, who isn't? Big storylines like the financialization of everything, the world in disarray, and cutting-edge advances in the world of science and technology, then you are going to love and find absolutely indispensable the Recount's newest podcast, the News Items Podcast with John Ellis. Every Monday through Thursday at 5.30 p.m., John and his brilliant co-host, Rebecca Darst, break down news items from three categories, geopolitics, finance, and science and tech. John Ellis writes one of the very best newsletters in journalism, and I'm talking about like I get a lot of newsletters, and most of them wash right over me. This one sticks. It's also called News Items, and he's teamed up with Rebecca, who is a veteran financial journalist and someone who just takes a little bit of John's edge off. If you want to feel a little bit smarter, or maybe even a whole lot smarter every day, and come away with a better understanding of the forces that are changing and shaping and transforming our world, then you owe it to yourself to listen to John and Rebecca and the News Items podcast. Plus, on most days, those two brilliant people have a bunch of other brilliant people who come on, heavy hitters like Maggie Haberman from the New York Times, Jim Cramer from Business TV, Jill Abramson, Steen Jakobsen, all kinds of great folks. So subscribe to the News Items Podcast with John Ellis now. And we're back with Rick Doblin here on Hell and High Water. Rick, I want to talk about you a little bit more oh. and a little bit more about your history. But first, I, I want to just play a little bit of sound. A man who I believe is one of your mentors, Stan Groff, yes. talking a little bit about LSD. My first LSD experience was extremely powerful. It really it completely changed my life professionally and also personally. And I said, you know, this is by far the most interesting thing you can do when you're a psychiatrist is study these non-ordinary states of consciousness. So this is what happened in the last 50, over 50 years. So Stan Groff, a pioneer in the world of, uh, of LSD research, someone was talking uh, in, in that clip uh, was talking about Albert Hoffman, mm -hmm. who the guy who kind of accidentally discovered LSD, or at least accidentally took it the first time, I should say. Um, and that's kind of a famous story, too. I'm curious, just, you know, we, again, we know each other, but I would love, yeah. to, I'd love, you know, given the role that you played in all of this, I think it's worth going back to the beginning. You grew up in Chicago in a pretty straight family, nice people, but not uh, psychonauts. <laughs> not uh, I'd love to hear your story of how you first like discovered psychedelics, both as a notion and then as a, as an experience. Well, my parents were very square. They didn't drink, they didn't smoke, but, you know, my dad's hero was Saul Alinsky. 
So they're very much left-wing progressive people. And they raised me very politically, to be politically minded. I also have loads of Israeli relatives. I've had relatives in Palestine, uh, Israel since 1904. So I was raised on stories of the Holocaust. And that was just deeply disturbing to me, as is everybody. And it just was wrestling with the um, irrational nature of humans and how we can dehumanize others and justify all sorts of horrible things. And it just, I had to wrestle with that. And, and then it sort of came home with Vietnam. And so this whole time, I was sort of raised by my parents to think that I was this multi-generational, um, in a multi-generational situation where on one side in 1880, my mom's side were refugees to America and 1920, my grandfather came. They all came fleeing persecution against Jews from Russia and Poland. And then they made it in America and the American dream. And then they gave me this freedom to work on what we call deeper threats. So I was raised to try to do, to respond, to try to help out Jewish survival, but also survival of everybody. Also during the 60s was the big time of going to the moon and just getting that kind of spiritual perspective of the view of the earth from the from the moon. And so I just was getting more and more interested in psychology and these mental factors. And I studied Jung in uh, high school as well. And when I wanted to go to college, I didn't know what I wanted to study. I knew that I was wanting to go in my own direction. I was a draft resistor for Vietnam, and I thought I was going to be picked up and go to jail at any point. What am I going to do? And then when I decided I want to go to a college, I got this thing from New College. It was a small experimental school, no grades, written evaluations, just first class was 1965. It was, it was incredible. And there was two big things that weren't in the brochure. One was they have all night dance parties with psychedelics hmm. until the sunrise. That was not in the brochure. That, that should have been in the brochure. That should have been in the brochure. Yeah. <laughs> it was not. You know, a lot okay. more applications. But also this tradition of deep internal experiences with high dose LSD. So this combination of support in the ecosystem of the students for deep psychedelic exploration and psychedelic celebration with your fellow students. Right. The other thing that wasn't in the brochure, which was great for me, because <laughs> I was super shy in high school, yeah. was uh, was a swimming pool, a big Olympic-sized swimming pool, and it became a nudist colony. So if you could imagine this super shy guy sitting around here with all these naked women, and at the same time, this whole tradition of all-night parties was psychedelics, it was like the perfect environment for me. It was this oasis of sanity where we're taking these underground energies bringing them to the surface it was a private school the campus police were to protect us from the real police yeah and in this experience i started taking lsd and um, mescaline this fella came by campus with half a pound of mescaline and i bought it all <laughs> <laughs> decided to share it with my friends and uh, mescaline is incidentally of all the psychedelics mescaline is the closest chemically to mdma right there's a warmth to it. So yeah. my first psychedelic experience is breaking down the ego, helping you see that you're just part of a much bigger picture, I thought had enormous political implications. And I was now looking back at the 60s and realizing that the backlash wasn't because psychedelics went wrong, although that did happen a lot of times. And that's sort of the common narrative now. Oh, too many people had bad trips and it had to be criminalized. But it was psychedelics going right that people like a lot of things that Leary was talking about is uh, question authority and think for yourself. And people got this sense of connection and they became social justice activists and started the counterculture. And that's what really was the backlash. So in this moment, 
I had the delusion that some people do that the more psychedelics you take, the faster you evolve. And I, you know, and if only that were true, yes, <laughs> but yes, you, yes. you need to do the integration work. So I didn't yeah. really appreciate that. So <laughs> I just thought, okay, I'm having a hard time with this trip. Let me plan another trip with even a higher dose and I'll break through and I'll, you know, and, and nothing really broke through. I was resisting. I wasn't doing the proper integration. So I went to the guidance counselor at school and you might imagine at a school like New College, this guidance counselor took me seriously and he didn't say, hey, I'm reporting you to the authorities. Yeah. He's like, this is really important what you're doing. And I happen to have this book you should read. And it was a book by Stan Groff. It was Realms of the Human Unconscious, Observations from LSD Research. And it was the key to my future because what it was, was science, which I trusted more than religion. When I took LSD too, I was like, man, this is what my bar mitzvah should have been. <laughs> you know, it, my bar didn't quite do it, but when you when you took LSD, is when you became a man. Is that what you're it was helping. It was energizing those same kind of existential. Who are you? What are you doing? Yes. The you know the bar mitzvah was like oh nice party. I'm the same. I'm no different. But right. it was Stan's book was science, looking at realms of the human unconscious, including these spiritual mystical states, which then I became aware had these political implications. The same thing that the astronauts talked about, they call it the overview effect. When you see the earth as one thing, you don't see the religions, you don't see the walls, you don't see the country right. boundaries, you see it's one fragile thing. So I felt this is what I need to devote my life to. And I asked the guidance counselor if he knew how I could get in touch with Stan Groff. And he said, yeah, he had his address. So I write to Stan, I'm just this confused 18-year-old doing a lot of drugs, having a hard time. He's MD, PhD at Hopkins. The LSD research is just shutting down. And he writes me back. And he says he's doing a workshop out in California later that summer. So this is a long time ago. I hitchhike across America. <laughs> and I did all of these meetings with Stan and others and felt that this is really what I want to devote my life to. This is the only thing that really makes sense. And it was like a long-term strategy for a long shot is how I would describe it. But I felt that there's so many people in America, we need to have all these different kind of strategies to lead towards a more peaceful world, to avoid uh, nuclear warfare with Russia, to avoid more Holocaust, to avoid uh, trashing the planet. And I thought, okay, I'll work on psychedelics and I'll work on trying to help people have these experiences of connection. That was 10 years before I learned about MDMA. And I dropped out of college, the classic story. But what became, um, clearer to me was that it took me 10 years to get integrated. And then I decided I'm going to go back to new college in September of 82. Yeah. And when I got there, I was like, well, I don't really want to be here because there's this month-long workshop that Stan is doing called the Mystical Quest out at Esalen in Big Sur. And while I was there, I learned about MDMA. And I was told by this woman, Debbie Harlow, that there was a new drug. It was called Adam. It helped you to feel more love. It helped you to feel connected. It helped you to accept yourself. And and I saw a group of people sitting in a circle doing MDMA that she had provided. And I'm like, they're talking to each other. I said, how profound can that be? You know, you take a bunch of LSD, you can't even talk. Since you like uh, music, John, I'll say that, you know, one of the best albums of the 60s is by David Crosby, a solo mm -hmm. album. And the title of it is, If I Could Only Remember My Name. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's the essence of the LSD experience. Yeah. At some yeah. point, if you can't remember your name, you know you're tripping. Yeah. You know, but all these people could remember their names. They could remember what people said. They could talk to each other. And so I was just like, how good can this drug be? So I like to say I was stupid enough to underestimate it, but smart enough to buy some.
And so I went home, took it, and it was profound, utterly profound. And so then I thought there's a twofold strategy, political strategy, is helping people work through their traumas, which MDMA is great for, so we can see more clearly, and helping people have these deeply mystical states so that they can feel our connection. And if we could have millions, well, thousands, tens, hundreds, thousands, millions, billions, eventually people to feel, come from that place and experientially, not just intellectually, then we'll have a more um, spiritualized humanity. So that's like the story of the awakening, right? A little bit of like, okay, this is what I want to spend my life on, right? Yeah. You know, there are a lot of people who have an awakening and think this is what I want to spend my life on. And it doesn't last, you know? But not only was that, there's these, the set of experiences that convinced you that this is what you Mm -hmm. wanted to do with your life. You did then do it with your life. Yeah. And you did it with your life in the face of, an enormous, a long, a long time and a lot of skepticism and a lot of hostility yeah, from a lot of yeah. people over a long period of time. I mean, there was a little bit of that at the Kennedy school, just to even For have sure. someone who was the way you were there to try to like do serious work on drug policy coming from the perspective that you came from. I remember some of the, of the hostility <laughs> you encountered there yeah. from some of the professors and yeah, others. Yes. And certainly in the years since, I'm sure your life has been full of those experiences. And I just wonder like, what is it about the way in which that revelation happened for you, that it stuck so deep. Mm. Do you think it's because that it's that it connected to experiences that are as profound as the experiences that you've had on psychedelics? Or do you think it's some way in which the nature of the experiences kind of snap into kind of fit you perfectly in some way where like, have there been moments when you wanted to give up um, when uh, in the face of all this resistance, skepticism, hostility, or were you just basically like, this is it. I found my mission this is what I'm doing now. And it's never really wavered. It's never really wavered from the time I was 18. There was one time, this was about 20 years ago, where I was so frustrated that I said, I have to take a break. And so I um, took a week off and painted the house. <laughs> that was really helpful because I felt like, all oh, my effort is going nowhere. I'm not accomplishing anything. And now, okay, I actually painted the house. I did something, it changed. But I think what kept me at it was first off, the reality of the Holocaust as really seeming to be not something that could never happen again. That's the whole story is never again. That's the main theme about the Holocaust. That's the Jewish refrain, never again. But seeing Trump and seeing how people would surrender to him has helped me understand how Hitler could take power in Germany. And that's a horrible thing to say about America. But I think we can see the abandonment of belief in democracy by a large part of our population and just going for power. So that it's, it's part of the human species. It's not just the Germans were this uniquely evil situation that, you know, it could happen again. And so I think what the education that I got from my parents and the education about Judaism, you know, the, the glo- joke about the Jewish holidays are, you know, they tried to kill us. They didn't win. Now let's eat. <laughs> And that's almost all Jewish holidays are like that. And just the reality of that. And I'd say what really did it for me was a dream that I had in my 20s after I had already decided to focus my life on psychedelics. And this dream was for those of people who've seen 2001 Space Odyssey. Near the end of it, the astronaut is in this all-white room. He's on his deathbed. This is before the birth of the star child. So in the dream, there's this guy in a deathbed. It's in an all-white room. And he's saying that earlier in his life, he was almost killed and he was miraculously saved. And he knew he was saved for a purpose, but he didn't know what the purpose was. And I'm sitting there 
talking to him. And um, he says, let me show you what happened. And then we're back into World War II and we're in front of this open grave and thousands of people are about to be machine gunned by the Nazis and they're all pushed in. And then I was sort of in underground with him. He was wounded, but he wasn't killed. And then it had this Jesus element that he was buried for three days and then sort of resurrected. He said, sort of came out of this and he climbed his way up through the bodies and he ran away and worked with the partisans. And then he said, okay, that's my story. Now we're back. He's on the deathbed. And he said, I know what my mission is now. And I'm like, well, what is that? He said, well, it's to tell you to be a psychedelic therapist, that this is what we need. We need to bring back psychedelic research, to go through your own psychedelics, to make it so more people can feel our common humanity. And in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, I've already accepted that. You can lay this burden on me and you can die in peace. And so then he does. So the answer to this is that my life, no matter how hard it's been, no matter how many people think that I'm doing crazy stuff or no matter how much resistance I get from the DEA, no matter how bad it gets, it's nothing like being in the Holocaust or being in Vietnam or, or being in a war zone. Or So I always felt like this is the best idea I can think of. This is and no, And then it became clear not that many people were working on it. And that made me want to do it even more. So I, I never really have thought of doing anything else. And I just feel still the same kind of idealism that the introduction of these tools into medicine can have a lot of implications for people that are suffering from depression, PTSD, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, phobias, we could go on and on. But for me, it has been this political understanding of how do we address the murderous nature of the human species. The political nature is a good place to, again, a good place to take a break. And then we'll come back and talk about a little bit about politics and a lot about the future mm, here with Rick Doblin, head of the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies and sort of like the Rembrandt of the psychedelic <laughs> renaissance. Uh, my dear friend, we will see you on, on the other side after these commercials here on Hell and High Water. And we're back on Hell and High Water with the Rick Doblin, head of the Multidisciplinary <laughs> Association of Psychedelic Studies, the man who is going to bring, in short order, MDMA, psilocybin, and eventually the lysergic, <laughs> aka LSD, aka acid, aka all those fabulous nicknames, going to bring it all to your life. So, like, if you, if you, you're going to be a point relatively soon where if you show up at your shrink's office, they're just going to like, stick a tab of bladder acid on your tongue and tell you to take a seat on the couch. I'm kidding. Rick, before we proceed, I want to play a little bit of sound right now from all of the presidents who've been president since you and I knew each other talking about drugs. Let's play that. Drugs are menacing our society. They're threatening our values and undercutting our institutions. They're killing our children. It's time, as Nancy said, for America to just say no to drugs. All of us agree that the gravest domestic threat facing our nation today is drugs. Who's responsible? Let me tell you straight out. Everyone who uses drugs, everyone who sells drugs, and everyone who looks the other way. Drug use has fallen by half since its peak 15 years ago. Teen drug use is leveling off and indeed may well be decreasing again. But we're a long way from my vision of a drug-free America. Drugs undermine the health of our citizens. They destroy the, destroy the souls of our children. Drugs attack everything that is the best about this country. And I intend to do something about them. I always say to folks, you know, uh, 
Legalization or decriminalization is not a panacea. Do you feel the same way about meth? Mm -hmm. Do we feel the same way about coke? Uh, how about crack? How about heroin? We are on the drug problem as much as you can possibly be on it. And we're going to get it taken care of one way or the other. And frankly, the tougher we get, the better it's going to be, the, the faster it's going to go away. We have got to get really tough on that problem because it's eating away at the heart of our country. Look, I think states should be able to make a judgment to legalize marijuana. I agree with I think that's okay. But let me tell you, the truth of the matter is, we, there's not nearly been enough evidence that has been uh, uh, acquired as to whether or not it is a gateway drug. Nationally, I'm not prepared to push for the legalization. Medical marijuana, yes. But the legalization of marijuana for recreational use, in fact, is one that I need more data to make that judgment. But no one should go to jail for it, period. All, that's, <laughs> that's every good. president. I don't think we've been unfair. Reagan, Bush 41, Bill Clinton, Bush 43, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Joe Biden. Now, I ask you, listening to those, I think those are fair samplings. Now, they're, they're brief. I mean, yeah. they obviously, all of them had more to say. But I guess I'm, when you listen to that, do you hear they're all singing from the same songbook? All of these guys are retrograde. None of them are really where they should be. They're all unenlightened. And I can't believe, even though we've made all this progress in the last 35 years, that these presidents are all still have their heads so far up their asses. Or do you hear there hasn't been enough progress, but you can hear the softening uh, as you move along the arc and that these guys are a lagging indicator, not a leading indicator, but you can hear the rhetoric softening, shifting in the right direction, if you listen closely enough. Yeah, I'm the latter. I, I do think that there uh, is a softening acceptance for medical marijuana. But one question that has been asked a lot is, uh, why are there so many Jews in the drug policy reform movement? And the reason is what I hear from all these presidents is that drugs are a scapegoat for all of our problems to redirect people. And what they're fundamentally missing is the relationship you have with the drug is what matters. There's no such thing as a good drug or a bad drug. And, you know, I just was, um, love it or leave it, I just did that the other day with John. And a lot of our discussion turned out to be about heroin. So he did the same thing that Obama was saying, was, you know, oh yeah, okay, psychedelics, marijuana, but what do you think about these drugs on the other side, like cocaine and heroin? And what I said was, the more dangerous the drug, the more important it is that it be legal. You need to destigmatize it. You need to make it so that it's pure, so people don't die from overdoses. You need people to be willing to get help. You need treatment on demand. You need honest education. You need harm reduction. So I do feel that in these clips that you played, there has been this gradual softening over time and that drugs are still a scapegoat. And that's why there's been so many Jews there, because once you have a scapegoat mentality for scapegoating, the target can shift and it can shift really easily. So people feel vulnerable. I'm just trying to be clear about this. You're saying you think that the yeah. that the reason that there are Jews involved in drug policy reform is that they recognize the tendency towards scapegoating in a way that maybe other communities don't. Is that the argument? Yes, exactly. Okay, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I it's funny. I, I do think I think both things I just said. I gave you a little yeah, bit of a yeah. false binary yeah, there yeah. as an analysis. I think you know I'm shocked that a I think you're right. There has been a softening and and it's even even on the on the Republican side, you know, there's no doubt that the kind of rhetoric you hear in the political arena is not as mindlessly harsh as it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. But it's also the case. I'm amazed by just still how far I mean, maybe I'm not amazed. Maybe it's just kind of one of those things you have to get your you have to get used to over time. And we've seen it in everything else in politics and policy, which is that 
elected leaders, not policymakers always, but elected leaders are really like behind the curve. Yes. They yes, are rarely yeah. leaders, in fact, on these things. They don't, they're very tentative and they only want to, they race to catch up with where the country is. That was certainly the case on gay marriage, mm-hmm. that where, the, where the, the, the people who are ostensibly our leaders are really our followers. And, and that is, I think, the case particularly in areas where there is cultural change happening and where politics is very has very crude kind of understanding in a lot of ways of the country that they of the of the citizens the electorates yeah. the the people yeah. that they represent they don't, they don't understand them as well as they think they do and they're certainly not in a position to lead them and so they end up following and i think that's what you hear in these cases in a lot of instances i think that that's very much the case although we're now working on a bill with dan crenshaw who's the republican from texas yeah. and tim ryan who is the democrat from ohio and they're working together in a bipartisan way on two bills. One would give $25 million to the Department of Defense for psychedelic research for PTSD. And one would give $25 million to the VA for psychedelic research for PTSD. And so I think the fact that so many veterans have PTSD and that MDMA has been helping the veteran community has really helped us get this kind of bipartisan support. And so in a few instances, there are politicians willing to step out and you know, they're not saying legalization, they're saying more research, but they really do want to help out. Did I say that Rick Perry? Did I see Rick yes. Perry is now involved? Of all the people that will be stunned to learn that former Texas governor known for a long time as Governor Goodhair, um, that Rick Perry is like kind of on the cause of reform now? Um, beyond kind of. I mean, again, a lot of it is his connection to the veteran community. He's heard a lot from Navy SEALs hmm. who have not gotten the support they need from the VA and have gone down to Mexico for a drug called Ibogaine and also the most potent psychedelic from the Sonoran Toad called the 5-MeO-DMT. And so there's hundreds of, of Navy SEALs that have left the country, gone down to Mexico or gone down to Brazil or Peru for ayahuasca and have found these substances and these experiences to be helpful in ways that the psychotherapies and the pharmacotherapies that the VA has delivered have not been helpful. We're also at this massive turning point with the VA. Mm-hmm. It was 1990 that I started trying to educate the VA and said MAPS would give them money to do MDMA research for PTSD. This was just for Vietnam vets at the time. And the psychiatrists and the therapists that were in touch with the patients knew they needed more, but it would all be squashed by the political leaders. And every five years we try again. So now we're about to start research inside the Bronx VA. And it's going to be with this woman, Rachel Yehuda. It's going to be tremendous. There's going to be a Loma Linda VA outside of LA. And we're working on a group therapy study to be at the Portland VA. But the weird thing is for me, is that you know we have to pay for it. We have to get philanthropists to pay for it. So the turning point is going to be, you know, when does the VA or the DOD start paying for this stuff? When we first started talking about all this stuff in a serious way back then, I was, I think, way more skeptical. I mean, I was way more skeptical. My views then were that these two things, that I just focused on marijuana, not even psychedelics, but that, mm-hmm. that there was no way marijuana would ever be legal mm-hmm. in America. I mean, I was a, a skeptical view mm-hmm. of how entrenched the opposition to that was and how conservative the culture was. And I thought that there would never be gay marriage. But again, we'll put that aside. Both of those things have been, are obviously huge transformative changes in a progressive direction, I would say. But I do think that as I, we watched this thing unfold and I saw, you know, the work you guys were doing throughout, especially on the medical marijuana front, when medical marijuana started to happen, that was when I first thought, okay, this mm-hmm. could all change now. Mm-hmm. Because it did seem to me that once you had, yeah. that A, there would be a lot, a lot of science would get generated from it and that the science would eventually seep out. But also just the the association of marijuana as a medicine 
was a powerful thing in the culture that like, oh, okay, state after state is now deregulating this because there is a real argument for that this is a medicine and not poison and that that rhetorical frame shift would matter a lot. And so then once it became clear that medical marijuana was going to be everywhere at that moment, I was like, well, okay, now it's going to be legalized everywhere. Now it's just a question of time. That to me, it was the, was really the breakthrough more than anything else. And I guess I wonder whether is that now what happens, you know, the focus right now for you guys on MDMA and the focus for on psilocybin and the focus on psychedelics in general is all in the therapeutic context. But MAPS, I know, you know, once in the long run, once not just therapeutic, once recreational full legalization of these things, that's always been your posture. Yes. Do you see this progression on a similar kind of trajectory, who knows what the timeline is, but where once we have acceptance of these psychedelics as medicines and as therapeutics, that that will be the same kind of gateway towards full recreational legalization with obviously with all kinds of regulatory attachments to it, just as there is with marijuana out there. But do you imagine a similar thing now plays out on that front over the next 10, 20, 30, whatever years? Yeah, we predict 2035 is when the transition will come to full legalization. But what we're talking about is licensed legalization, the slight variation. Our goal is mass mental health. And to explain what that means is that, you know, in the 60s, there was thought, oh, if we just give this to the politicians, I actually had a, a great opportunity to speak to Steve Jobs for an hour, trying, of course, to get him to donate to LSD research, which didn't succeed. But during it, he said, you know, I just wish we could give LSD to all these politicians. And I was like, God, that's such a 60s thing to say. But <laughs> I think the the real... It's not that different than us trying to give MDMA to all of our classmates at the, at the Kennedy School. Yeah. Let's not diss Steve Jobs. We had, we're sort of on the same wavelength, but yeah, go on. In some ways, yeah. But, but I think what we also need, and this came to me during a DMT experience... <laughs> Of course we need mass mental health is the way to go. And we need, on the one hand, medicalization, and on the other hand, drug policy reform. Right. And so that is explicitly our goal. I mean, as a nonprofit, we also own a benefit corporation. So MAPS is 100% owner of a public benefit corporation, yeah. which is our pharmaceutical arm. And we will sell MDMA for a profit once we make it, but we'll maximize public benefit over profit. I think that this kind of effort to medicalize and have it be covered by insurance for people with diagnoses, that's one track. And the other track is for personal growth, for spiritual, for couples, for relationships, for fun, for celebration, for parties, for all different things that people should have access to it through this licensed legalization way. And I think what we're gonna need is a decade of psychedelic clinics. Yeah. This, so 1996, was the first medical marijuana states, California and Arizona. And so now we are 25 years later, we still don't have federal legalization of marijuana, but I think it'll happen in 2025. We need more marijuana legalization states in 2022, or they mostly happen by initiatives, mostly in the presidential year. So we'll have more in 2024. And then I think Congress will be set for federal legalization in 2025. Then we're now, Early 2023, we'll have MDMA become a medicine. Psilocybin will be a year or so after. There's already hundreds of ketamine clinics for depression, although ketamine was approved without therapy, just as a so it's suboptimal. And more and more of the therapists who administer it are giving it with therapy. But we'll have a decade of psychedelic clinics, which will be thousands of them rolling out through America, through Europe, through the rest of the world. And then we'll have all these stories of people getting better. And that's what will change people's minds. There's a land grab quality to this now, right? Where there's money is pouring in, private investment. Everybody kind of this thing says, this is like the next big thing. How do we get in on this? Mm-hmm. 
I think you said there's a it's a bubble, right? Yeah. It's, there's a little tulip mania going on about it. We're in that phase right now. Mm. Yeah. And, and those things never often don't end well, you know, speculative manias, right? Yeah. And I saw, you know, in the Times piece, you said, you know, there are a lot of challenges ahead and, and we don't want to fuck this up at the last yeah. minute, right? Yeah. What do you worry about? What are the things when you think about what's ahead here are the things that either things that could go wrong and spark a backlash or other kinds of ways in which this thing, which feels like it has irreversible, ineluctable kind of momentum in the right direction where somehow something could happen that would be a major setback and, and we wouldn't end up where, I mean, you've offered some very confident predictions about things that will happen yeah. in particular years. Yeah. What do you worry about? Well, what I worry about mostly is the economic pressures from these for-profit companies trying to reduce the amount of therapy that people get in order, in their minds, to be making the money selling the drugs. So it's going to be a challenge to get insurance companies to cover this. It's more expensive initially than giving somebody once a week therapy or giving them pills, but it's cost effective. So we've done cost effectiveness studies with uh, Elliot Marseille, who's a healthcare economist at UC San Francisco, and it looks cost effective. But the pressure is going to be to reduce the cost of the treatment, and it's going to be to reduce the main expense of the treatment, which is the human therapy time. And so I worry that we could have therapists that are not properly trained. We could have people having difficult experiences that they're not supported and have negative outcomes. So particularly when you roll out something new in society, first impressions make a big difference. And so if it's the uh, zeal for profits that overwhelms the care in training the therapists, and the reason why the therapists are so important is, first off, for MDMA and psilocybin, I'll just say we're not actually doing research with psilocybin. It's other groups right. that are doing that. Yeah, yeah. But it's psilocybin-assisted therapy, MDMA-assisted therapy. And the FDA and the European Medicines Agency, they have these programs. In the U.S., it's called REMS, Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategies. And there are customized policies for each drug. And what they're going to say for psychedelics since it's not the drug, it's the therapy that the drug enhances, is that the only people that can prescribe, the only people that can treat patients have been through the training program of the sponsors, so they know how the therapy was done in the phase three studies that made it into a medicine. So there will be pressure to make that less. And so that's one big worry. I don't think that it's going to be a worry anymore from backlash because of the counterculture. We're too bipartisan, too much into veterans, it's too much Republican support. One of the things I'll be doing next is a talk with Fox News. So we have really good support in Fox News for psychedelic research, ironically. <laughs> ironically, yeah. Other big thing I'm worried about is uh, Christian fundamentalists and Jewish Orthodox fundamentalists. Right. Not so much in America, Muslim fundamentalists, but because what we've been talking about, this sort of universal global spirituality it goes deeper than any particular religion. And so the interpretation that I would have of religion is similar to a language. You know, there's an underlying need that all humans have to communicate through sounds that we make, and we've come up with thousands of different languages, but they all do essentially the same thing. And we don't say, you know, English is better fundamentally than German. German is better than French or, or whatever. They, they have different flavors. But with religions, we have everybody saying, my religion is the only one right religion. Everybody else is either off the track or going to hell or an infidel or whatever. So the essential aspect of the psychedelic experience, the classic psychedelics, is this ego dissolving, merging into this sort of sense of evolution. And that's fundamentally against fundamentalism. 
And actually, mysticism is the antidote to fundamentalism. So I'm worried the backlash is not going to be from the counterculture. The backlash that happened near the end of Carter's term and into Reagan's term was parents worried about their kids. Right. I don't think that's going to be it anymore either. I think if there is a backlash, it will come from fundamentalists who are scared about these kind of claims. The same way that when Galileo and Copernicus talked about how the earth wasn't the center of the universe, the Inquisition burned Father Bruno at the stake right. for saying that he believed it. So I'm not concerned, but most everybody else on the for-profit side is concerned about the drug policy reform efforts going faster than the research and then having negative backlash from that. What would that mean? So in Washington, D.C., you've had legalized plant psychedelics. Right. So you know they make them not exactly legal for commerce, but the lowest enforcement priority. That's happened here in Somerville. It embarrassed the People's Republic of Cambridge that Somerville went first to decriminalize natural psychedelics, and then Cambridge did. Now we've got Oregon, the Oregon Psilocybin Initiative. We have efforts to do overall state decrim. So the worries that people have are this... The research is being used to justify drug policy reform. It will expose people who are not properly prepared without proper guidance, and then there'll be a backlash. But a friend of mine worked for Congressman Conyers when he was head of the Black Congressional Caucus, and he said that he talked about what they thought was the Malcolm X, Martin Luther King strategy, yeah. in a sense, that the extremes, and we see this, what's happening in the Republicans, so it's not always a good thing, but this idea that when you have people that stake out what they think are more minority views, they pull the center in that direction. And so medical research with psychedelics is not as controversial anymore because now we have all these drug policy reform initiatives. That's where the more controversy, what we heard from Obama, you know, we heard from Biden. Oh, they're a favor right. of medicine, but you yeah. know, not that. So I'm not worried. I think that this drug policy reform legitimizes the medicine even more, and it serves our long-term needs. It delegitimizes the drug war, which has been used to squash research. Now, am I worried about for-profit companies succeeding and then direct marketing to consumers? Yeah. Like, you know, have you talked to your doctor about psilocybin? Sure. Or MDMA? I am a little bit worried about that. Yeah. One of the things that I'm reading in the time story toward the very end of the piece, it does make this point, and I'll quote it here. And again, you sort of alluded to this earlier, but I just want to get to it in a direct yeah, way. Yeah. So winning FDA approval, you know, what you're on track to do now, winning FDA approval would give MAPS at least six years of exclusivity yeah. to market its MDMA-guided treatments for PTSD with a potential windfall of $750 million, million dollars. Most of that money, Doblin said, would help train a generation of psychedelic practitioners, fund lobbying efforts yeah, to require yeah. insurance coverage for treatments, promote new therapies around the world. You're going to be in this business, right? Yes. Those are commercials you could be making. It could potentially. Yeah. And so what we've done is we've sort of pioneered a new approach to psychiatric illnesses with others, which is psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. But we also want to pioneer something new in the marketing of drugs, right. which we look at the profit motive in American healthcare, and it's warped us all out of recognition. We have the highest per capita expenditures, and our healthcare are like down 40 or 50 countries, something like that, our average healthcare outcomes. And what's driving that a lot is the profit motive. So what we're trying to demonstrate is the public benefit corporation, which I think is a very important modification of capitalism where you maximize public benefit, not profit, but you still make a profit. Right. So maps to market MDMA, and we were told that if we want to sell MDMA for the same thing that it costs us, sure, we can sell that out of the nonprofit. But if we want to make a profit at it, 
then we need to sell it in a taxable corporation, a for-profit corporation. So we're going to do that in a, a benefit corp. And now in the history of MAPS over 35 years, yeah, we've raised $110 million now. Um, the for-profits have raised well over a billion. And what a big story to our donors was there are so many uses of MDMA and other psychedelics that if we were going to rely on philanthropy forever, we'd be coming back to you for more money, more money, more money every year. But since we have the option of selling MDMA for a profit through this exclusivity period, it's 10 years in Europe, by the way, for data exclusivity, whereas it's really only five years in the US, but you do pediatric studies, you get another six months, it blocks generic competitor until five and a half years is over to apply. FDA takes at least six months. So I think that we will have a chance to make a profit. We could make double that profit if we charged even higher prices. Right. So we've hired Boston Consulting Group, yeah. BCG, to do a commercial, you know, like everybody does. We've hired I BCG. Love, I, love that you, to, I love that you guys are like, this is so good. Yeah. For anybody who actually knows the history of the multi-experience, <laughs> like it's, you know, like a, we go over that house in, that, that house of yours in Cambridge. And, you know, it's a, it's not like the idea that you guys are like now bringing on like these sharp-suited consultants to come in. It's like cracks me up, you know. It from, is hilarious, yeah. There's a little bit of a chewing gum and bailing wire operation uh, for many, many years. And now uh, apparently you guys have hit the big time. So. Um, now, the, you asked me, what am I worried about? So yeah. actually what I believe is my biggest worry right now of all is how do we get the money to complete what we're doing, to commercialize and to globalize? And what we have realized is that from this BCG report, that commercialization itself is a whole separate thing beyond getting FDA to say yes to prescription use. Yeah. And so we're like a pharmaceutical company that started just to do research. And now that we have a product that can make sense, we may need to, we do need to staff up in all these different directions for commercial functions. So ideally we need 50 million a year for three years, another 150 million to reach sustainability from the sale of MDMA. And what we find is that there's so many investment opportunities that a lot of the donors want to invest. Yeah. And the numbers are staggering of how much we need, but the numbers are staggering of what our input could well, be. Well, um, it's a good problem to have. And um, <laughs> yes, uh, I'll just say, as we bring this thing to a close here, I'll just say, you know, it doesn't happen that often where you see someone, not, like I, I really do feel yeah. like this is like one of the great kind of, in, in a way, like one of the great David and Goliath stories of our time. <laughs> There's never a time from the time that you and I first started talking about this stuff that it didn't seem to me that the intellectual case for the kinds of changes and the kinds of reforms that you were pursuing was not like airtight. And I, I felt this way about drug policy for a long time on a variety of fronts. As you know, you and I are, are on terms of what we think should happen are pretty closely aligned. Yeah. Less than you, but but more than many people, I've been having <laughs> these arguments with people about legalization, decriminalization for my entire adult life. And it's been heartening, you know, over time to see progress. Progress is always heartening. Though it comes too slow in too many places, there's no progress at all. But this is a place where there's been yeah. genuine progress and, and the world has moved in the right direction and moved towards a more, what I think of as a more intellectually and on a policy grounds, a more humane, more progressive, more sensible, more logical place. We're not all the way there yet, but mm -hmm. to see where we are right now, to read the story in the Times, I'll tell you, I, I like it when my friends uh, do well and I like it when they achieve their goals and I like it when they're doing things that make them happy and satisfied. And I like it when they have success. It makes me happy. It makes me proud. It makes me joyful for them. But in your case, this is like one of these things where I really, it's one of the most uh, kind of inspiring things I've ever seen because I was on your side and I thought you were fucking nuts. <laughs> like that this, there was just, I'm like, dude, you're going to waste your life. Yeah. This is never going to happen. The, your dream. I mean, yeah, like yeah. I think we maybe get some progress on weed, you know, yeah. but this dream 
is out of reach. Yeah. Don't dude, don't waste your life on this, man. <laughs> and you were right. And I was wrong and, and we're not all the way there, but man, we're a lot closer than I ever imagined us being to something that looks sane to when it comes to these substances. Yeah. Uh, Rick Dobbin, great to reconnect. Great to see you. The world's greatest living poster, <laughs> not for tuning in, turning on and dropping out, but for tuning in, turning on and dropping in, I don't know dropping what. in and, and yes, uh, ramping up. <laughs> I'm glad things are going so well. Thank you, Chad. Helen High Water is a podcast from the recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to Rick Doblin for being with us. If you like this episode, please, please subscribe to Hell on High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell on High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roten handled the research. Stephanie Stender is our post producer. And Christian Fidel Castro Russell is our executive producer. 